Scrapple fans. I am your previous director of fun, Mike Quackenbush. I'm here with your current director of fun, Bryce Remsburg. And on this very podcast, we talk about only four topics. They are something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. Bryce Remsburg, how are you? I'm fantastic, Mike. And it's been too long since we've done this. But as we were just remarking before we hit record, it hasn't been for lack of anything better to do. We've all been uh, very busy people, but it's a great anytime we can find the time to sit down and, and put one of these in the in the bank for all, all the Debbies out there. I did have somebody come up to me in New Orleans and chastise me for the gap between oh. deep blue somethings. <laughs> like, wasn't interested in an autograph or a photo <laughs> or a t-shirt or anything. No, just wanted me to know that we're behind and wow. then walked away. <laughs> if if uh, uh, I encountered a Debbie on the New York City subway... Uh-huh. Uh, uh, leaving the Weird Al concert at the Apollo Theater, which, of course, if I don't know if you've been to Harlem, Mike, but mm-hmm, you know when you when you think white and nerdy, you think Harlem, New York City. So uh, Weird Al played the first of two nights at the Apollo Theater, and on the subway back from Harlem back to Midtown Manhattan, a very nice and uh, uh, n- someone not asking when the next deep blue something was coming up, uh, but a very nice, polite Debbie had a conversation with a gentleman by the name of Peter. I want to say hello to Peter. Uh, thanks for listening, and thanks for the uh, the deep dive Weird Al conversation on the uh, the train as well. Mm. A weird but true bit of trivia: several years ago, thanks to a uh, Wrestle Factory trainee at the time, we came very close to doing a show at the Apollo, uh, but it was not to be materialized. In fact, another event that failed to be materialized might be the topic of something old that we're going to cover this week, which was sent in to us via Twitter. Using the hashtag Deep Blue something because that's how we communicate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No eye contact. Mm-mm, no, we prefer not to. <laughs> that, uh, that cost extra. So I don't know how this came up, but I suppose on a previous episode, we may have briefly alluded to the very short period of time in which it seemed as if Chikara might host the Super J Cup. I don't even remember mentioning this, do you? <laughs> I remember you mentioning it briefly, and I had forgotten that it happened. I remember mm-hmm. this conversation from whatever year we're about to find out this was. Uh, it, it, it left my brain. It was mentioned on a podcast, re-entered my brain. And then I saw that tweet from the other day, and it re-entered my brain. So I am, <laughs> as, I am as curious as this Debbie is to hear more about this. Well, uh, so I went into the files here mm. and dug out a, a document so old it was a Microsoft Word document. It's oh. before I switched over to Mac. I was picturing so, a big cabinet, a big dusty cabinet. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's like a soft green. <laughs> yeah. um, so there was a period of time in late 2009 where Chikara and New Japan Pro Wrestling were discussing the possibility of Chikara hosting the Super J Cup at the ECW Arena, which at the time might have been the new Alhambra or it might have been the 2300 arena, or this might have been in the period of time where it was only referred to as the arena to make Google searches impossible. (laughs) I don't remember what it was called at the time. Uh, And I remember on the Chikara side of things, I was the point man on the New Japan side of things, Tiger Hattori. Uh, The English-speaking referee was the point man. We had a number of discussions through the autumn of 2009 about what it would take for the Super J Cup to be held in Philadelphia under our banner. Um, There were two, eh, maybe three, main hurdles to this coming together. Number one, of course, the politics, because part of a Super J Cup is getting all these different organizations to participate together. 
And if you listen to the episode that Bryce and I did about Joshi Mania, you probably have a sense that trying to get a bunch of different wrestling organizations, some of which consider each other to be competitors, getting them all to work together for the sake of making one super awesome event is not always the easiest thing to pull off. No, no. But we were in a really good position back in 2009 because we had fairly workable relationships with a number of other groups, including Osaka Pro Wrestling, Dragon Gate, uh, this thing that we had going on at the time with New Japan Pro Wrestling. And we also had friends in places like DDT and Big Japan, Michinoku Pro, etc. So we, we had enough friends in enough different places. And the fact that this was going to happen outside of Japan did alleviate some of the politics, which was great. However, um, a, a two-pronged problem. Number one was budgeting, and the other was what New Japan wanted to use the name Super J-Cup. And there was nothing, and I'm telling you as, as the guy who was on the phone at 5 a.m. talking to Tiger Hattori about this because of the time difference between us and Japan – um, that was like the biggest sticking point. And just to give you a little insight into where this all began, and I don't honestly, I don't remember where it ended exactly. When we started, New Japan wanted half of the revenue generated by anything called Super J Cup, meaning ticket sales, DVD sales. You know, this is sort of a, a, a nascent form of MP4 and then streaming video on demand type stuff back then. They wanted half just to be able to call it the Super J Cup. But numbers were crunched and everything else. And as I, as I mentioned, some negotiations went on. Where they exactly ended, I don't remember. However, I have this and I have my notes directly in front of me. Uh, and uh, this part of the story, I'm 100% certain I've never told to another human being before right now uh, other than Tiger Hattori. We agreed on this lineup of 14 wrestlers on October 30th, 2009, and all parties were in agreement. There were 14 wrestlers to be in the Super J Cup, uh, which would have been hosted in, uh, I know the exact date here, give me one second. This would have taken place July 25th, 2010 at the ECW Arena. We agreed with New Japan Pro Wrestling that, for, and I don't remember the logic behind this, but Jushin Liger and Brian Kendrick had buys into the second round. Okay. These are the six matches that would have made up that Super J Cup. Jigsaw against Kota Ibushi. <laughs> Hollow Wicked against Billy Ken Kidd. Milano Collection AT against Mystico. And this is the original Mystico, give or take 18 months before he goes to the WWE. Mm -hmm. Dragon Kid against yours truly, Mike Quackenbush. Tiger Mask 4 against Gran Akuma. And Frightmare against Turbo. Now, if that last name doesn't ring a bell to you, Turbo is perhaps the most celebrated protege of Jorge Skyda Rivera. And Turbo wrestled... I don't know. What do you think, Bryce? Three matches for Chikara? Yeah, he was definitely in a Raid of Aladuras, I want to say, around this time, 2008, 2009 or so. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I think two or three matches sounds about right. Right, there was one up in New England, I remember, where... Oh, yeah, Framingham, his, Massachusetts. Like, his luggage got lost, and I think he wrestled in street clothes 
that sounds- or, or, or we cobbled something together from other people's bags yeah. so that he didn't have to wear jeans. I think he only had his mask and that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. Like he wore somebody's yoga pants to the mm-hmm. ring. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, and Turbo, by the way, uh, there's a really fun tag match. You, If you know what these matches are and you really know your Chikara history, you'll see where the branches are. There's a tag match where Frightmare and I team together against Skyda and Turbo. Um, which was like on a, a random like night three of a Young Lions Cup yeah. kind of thing or whatever. Anyhow, so those were the six matches that we agreed on, plus buys for Jushin Liger and Brian Kendrick into the second round. And then we also had this agreed upon as like a match between the rounds so that the competitors would have a break to like rest. Mm-hmm. This tag match would have taken place. Uh, there was a brief tag team, and Bryce, you're going to have to help me out here on the trivia side. Sarah Stock at the time was called Sarita, and mm-hmm. she was teaming with Taylor Wilde. Yeah. Why was this a thing? Uh, they were. They may have been uh, TNA knockout tag team champions. Uh, <laughs> Taylor, Taylor Wilde uh, had, among her very first matches at the first Shimmer tapings in 2005, when she was known as Chantel Taylor. Uh, she's based out of ter- the Toronto area, and uh, Sarah Stock, who was Sarita when she wore her mask in TNA, was mm-hmm. mainly based out of Mexico at the time. So I don't know what made them team in TNA, but I'm guessing that was the logic of them being together, because they're already teaming on U.S. national television at the time. That's my I guess. See. Well, I'm glad your memory uh, serves better than my document. They would have been against Sarah Del Rey and Daisy Hayes. Okay. That would have been a great match. I don't doubt it. Sarah Stock is horrifically underrated. She is an incredibly talented wrestler. And I am embarrassed to say I can't even picture Taylor Wilde. Uh, Description will do no good. Uh, You'll have to Google it. (laughs) Uh, She's she's a a very short, pleasant young lady uh, that I remember from the first – the very, very early shimmer tapings. In a in a uh, bit of irony, I, I believe Sarah Del Rey got Sarah Stock her WWE producer job. Yes. Or she uh, at least and, went to bat for her. Right. And a weird but true thing, the first night I produced some NXT, which is a really weird <laughs> sentence to say, <laughs> I sat beside Sarah Stock, who was kind of there to be like, don't do that. That's okay. I didn't know she was oh, there that long. I had no idea she was there for that long. Yeah. Uh, um, of, of, those, <laughs> of those 16 competitors in this uh, hypothetical Super J Cup, mm-hmm. uh, 14 out of 16 went on to uh, wrestle in Shikara at some point, I believe. If I'm not mistaken, everyone, everyone except for Brian Kendrick and Dragon Kid. Have, has Tiger no, not Tiger Mask Four, right? Oh, that's right. You you wrestled him at a Nanchikara event. Yes, that's true. Um, and in fact, you know the guy that put that on now runs I, I, a Midwestern independent called Black Label yes, Pro. I ran into him in New Orleans, as a matter of fact, very briefly. As the formerly Fight Sports Midwest. That's it. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, weird but true. Oh, and of course, Mystico. Mystico never wrestled for right. Dragon. Chikara. Dragon Kid was meant to, correct? But got injured. Right. You were exactly right. So here's the weird fallout of this. As I said, we agreed on all of this on October 30th, 2009. Here comes some wrestling history for you. On November 1st, 2009, New Japan announces that they are hosting the next Super J Cup, which they did. 
and Naomichi Marafuji went on to win that. And we never, ever heard from New Japan again. So I don't know if they liked this idea, but not enough to let us have it. The Super J Cup that they put on in Japan is radically different. Other than it happens to also contain Liger and Kota Ibushi, mm -hmm. it has n it in no way, shape, or form resembles what I had agreed upon. However, it always struck me strange that two days after we agreed on everything, suddenly New Japan announces they're hosting the Super J Cup, and I never hear from them again on this point whatsoever. Um... You might also be curious to know whatever came of the date we put aside to have this, July 25th, 2010. Do you happen to know, Bryce? I do, I do. That was the inaugural Chikarasaurus Rex, correct? Um, I don't know if it was the first one, but uh, it definitely was a Chikarasaurus Rex. It, you are right. It, it, was, it was a joint promotion with our friends at Dragon Gate, though, at the time. Correct. Yeah. So the Dragon Gate... Uh, office had already because we i was working on this well in advance we had already asked some of our partners to start putting dates aside because we felt fairly confident as new japan was agreeing to everything that this was going to happen so instead july 25th 2010 at the ecw arena rather than being chikara presents the super j cup became chikarasaurus rex king of show and it did feature a number of really interesting um wrestlers from various promotions mixed up with each other including instead of sarita and taylor wilde taking on the tag team of sarah del rey and daisy hayes instead we had amazing kong and raisha saeed mm -hmm. taking mm -hmm. on sarah del rey and daisy hayes if i remember right this features the amazing visual of daisy hayes giving a german super Plex to Amazing Kong. I believe you are remembering correctly. It, it was. It may have even been the conclusion of the match. Mm -hmm. uh, there were also uh, there were two trios matches that pit Dragon Gate guys against Chikara guys. One of which was a configuration of Fist against Shima, Masaki Mokuzuki, and Super Shenlong. That was meant to be Dragon Kid, uh, but yeah. as you remembered, Dragon Kid was injured. Yep. Um, and at the last minute, they subbed in Super Shenlong, who did a fine job. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, is no Dragon Kid. Sure. Uh, this also featured Shingo against Equinox. That Equinox was Jimmy Olsen. And in the main event, uh, yours truly, Jigsaw, and Hollowicked, three of whom, you know, the three of us, were meant to have been in this um, Super Jacob. Hollowicked would have wrestled Billy Ken Kid had it happened. I would have wrestled Dragon Kid. Jigsaw would have wrestled Kota Ibushi. We took on the trio of Naruki Doi, Masato Yoshino, and BB Hulk. That card also featured Ares and Claudio Castagnoli against the only teaming of Eddie Kingston and Tommy Dreamer that I can remember. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the opener was a, a crazy eight-man tag that pitted the BDK against the Colony Plus Frightmare and the one-off Drake's on a plane, Bryce. <laughs> yep. You remember Drake's on a plane? I do. I do. Any any time Drake Younger was in Chakar locker room, it was a, it was a happy day. Right on. They took on the unstable. If you're curious to see this, it's one of the weirdest in Chikara history. Yeah. Uh, and no doubt if one of us ever gets around to writing a book about everything Chikara, this is going to be a day about which much is written. Nevertheless, if you're a Chikaratopia subscriber, navigate to Season 9. There you will find Chikarasaurus Rex, King of Show, 
on the date that was reserved for the Super J Cup 2010 that Chikara never got to host. So thanks very much for sending in that suggestion of something old. I think now we might shift gears to something new, Bryce. I would love to because all I can think about is how hot it was that day in the arena. Do you remember how hot it was that day? It it, it was probably 100 degrees outside. It was brutal. I don't think you were tasked with uh, running the Rocky Stairs that afternoon. Do you remember that? Mm -mm. No, I did not do that. I remember being at the top of the Rocky Stairs where there is no shade at 95 (laughs) degrees easily with loud and noxious. Uh, A lot of sweat was had with uh, some very fortunate members of the Chikarmi in our forest green Chikara shirts, our dark Mm -hmm. green Chikara shirts. Yes. That footage kept turning up like in video packages for years. Uh, just, uh, one more quick aside, because this comes up a lot. People say, like, what was the... People love superlatives in wrestling. Like, the the, mm-hmm. the craziest this thing. When I think of uh, Dragon Kid and Masato Yoshino, I think of the fastest men I've ever been in the ring with. Mm-hmm. Can you think of someone that you've ever seen, like, from inside the ring and saw someone move with such speed? Wow. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like that, that, that comes to mind. My thought, my memories of, of our time in Dragon Gate USA are ruining referee shirt after referee shirt and everyone's gear <laughs> off the, the red leaking mat. But also yes. just, just watching these guys at work from inside the ring is just amazing. It's an entirely I, different way to appreciate them. I could not name somebody off the top of my head that I think is faster. Um, do you know why that was, by the way, that the canvas – leaked red so to speak no do you i do so they had that dragon gate usa canvas customized you might remember it had like a border Mm -hmm. around it Mm -hmm. and it had to be done rush by the people down at high spots i believe okay so because it was a rush job they did not have adequate time after the dye job to dry the canvas and it shipped having not gone through the correct process which is why every piece of fabric that touched it absorbed the red dye, including your referee shirts. Uh-huh. I had brand new purple gear uh-huh. made. I mean, we all had brand new gear made for that first Dragon Gate USA show. Yeah. We all wanted to look like we were wearing our Sunday best. And we all had our, except maybe for Jigsaw, who was wearing red anyway, right. we all had our gear destroyed. Yeah, good times. Good times. Right? <laughs> That's the only way to sum that one up. <laughs> Uh, you know, then we get to share the ring with you. Either had a singles or a tag against Pac, right? In in Ontario, do you remember that? Yeah, you know, I don't know if you had just brought this up to me recently. Someone else brought it up to me recently. They were like, "I love that match," and I'm honest to God, I have no memory of that match. It was either <laughs> it was either in Windsor, Ontario, or Mississauga, Ontario. I remember being at both of those venues on one weekend, being on the road for Dragon Gate USA. Uh, but alas, yes, no, the. We've about summed up our memories from Dragon Gate USA, and that was only seven or eight years ago somehow. Uh, but yes, I also remember the uh, the separate locker rooms for the Dragon Gate crew, <laughs> uh, which is the only Eric time I... Cannon tells one of my favorite stories ever about that. Um, do, do, do you know his story? Like, Please He tell can't me. even get the story out without laughing. Please go on. Uh, that So as Bryce alluded to, the, uh, the the Japanese wrestlers from Dragon Gate had like a private dressing room. And without fail, and I think it's just how it worked out, right? They always had a way nicer dressing room than everyone else. Like, noticeably nicer. 
Eric Cannon loves to tell the story about one day at Dragon Gate USA, all the Japanese guys wanted a chance to speak during the meeting because normally this was handled by Gabe Sapolsky or was handled by that very ominous Japanese representative who rarely spoke. And when he did, it felt like you could feel tectonic plates moving in the (laughs) earth. (laughs) Someone was in trouble when he was speaking. Yeah, that's the only reason he ever spoke up. There was trouble. The Japanese wrestlers wanted to take a moment and assure the American side of the Dragon Gate USA roster that we were all equals and we were all working together. And as soon as they said that, they then marched into their much nicer dressing room <laughs> and shut and locked the door. <laughs> <laughs> and and some of these venues were like, you know, especially as the uh, the bloom fell off the, the red leaking canvas rose slowly but surely. The venues were not always, you know, it started as the, the SW Arena and BB Kings in Times Square, which is just announced their closing. Uh, and mm. then it was, it was armories and they got a little smaller. And then we were at the, the Ace Arena in Union City, New Jersey. Do you remember that place? <laughs> when it was impossible. Like the, to have their own locker room, they had to be in, in like an office, like a teacher's office. Right. There were six of them on top of each other in this tiny office, but it was so important they had their own locker room. Uh, that, that's how things went. But as, as time went on, it wasn't always advantageous or even glamorous for them to have their own locker rooms. Uh, mm-hmm. so it became, yes, I, I remember that Eric Cannon story and I thought of it every single time I'd go by a, <laughs> a, 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 a door, which had a, uh, a sign in, you know, it was, it was just a piece of paper taped to the wall with Sharpie written, you know, Japanese talent only or Dragon Gate talent only. Uh, but mm. invariably because their English was not great, it was, you know, it was, it was not the, not the most well-constructed sign sometimes, but the message was received far and wide. This is, <laughs> you don't go in here unless you have to. <laughs> the only time I ever went in there was to apologize to Genki Horaguchi. Mm. And as soon as my apology was over, they threw me out. <laughs> I, I always thought he was one of the nicer ones. I always, I always, enjoyed, uh, Shingo was my favorite. Shingo, mm. I thought was the most friendly of that whole gang. And he would sometimes venture out into the uh, the wild of the Americans and the Canadians. But I always I always had a pleasant, uh, smiling hello and goodbye relationship with Shingo. I can only speak for myself. Uh, my favorite of that crew, and he never came over as part of Dragon Gate USA because unfortunately he's always been at the very bottom of the card, is Super Shisa, who you might remember came over for a King of Trios mm-hmm. by my personal invitation one year. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm, I do. Yeah, I think the world of Super Shisa. And we had a fun little, um, you know, brief meeting there where we joined each other's mutual admiration clubs. It was all very lovely. Every time I watch Akira Tozawa wrestle on my television, I hope that someone who made him do some awful task for them in that day is, is, uh, is you know, lonely and sad somewhere. Yeah, I don't know of anyone that I could name and that I knew personally who was subjected mm-hmm. to more hazing yep. than that guy. Yep. And always yeah. always coming out with a smile. Actually, he was the most pleasant one to the Americans because he was the lowest on the totem pole at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. But but to think that he is now, of that crew, the biggest international star by way of his you know WWE alliance uh, makes me mm-hmm. smile in many ways. Also, he's a very, very talented wrestler. I very much enjoy his work. Yes, uh, as far as escapes go, his was definitely an upgrade. Uh, yeah, that's, that's um, true. Yeah, enough said. Yeah, yeah. So on the topic of something new, mm-hmm. well, there's something new on the horizon for Chikara. It's the Infinite Gauntlet. And we're heading outside of the Wrestle Factory for the first time this season up to Pocono Mountain West Junior High School on Saturday evening, May 5th. Uh, I cannot wait for this one. 
I think it's it's one of the most fun events we put on every year. It is. It's one of the 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 most unpredictable event we uh, we hold each year, and for the first time, it's it's going on the road. I believe all three previous Infinite Gauntlets have been at the Wrestle Factory, uh, and it's mm-hmm. it's odd to have a a tradition, so to speak, so new that's only been held at the Wrestle Factory. We've only been holding events at the Wrestle Factory for just under three years. So uh, to take something like this on the road, it's our it's our first time. Anywhere in this part of Pennsylvania, and I don't know, it has to be at least 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we left Pittston in 2005. We left Barnesville in 2007, I believe. So uh, very excited to get up to, to Pocono Summit on Saturday night, May the 5th. It's Cinco de Mayo, which makes it easy to remember. And uh, this has to be far and away the most uh, diverse lineup of characters we've, we're going to have in one locker room so far this season, if not since the last Infinite Gauntlet, at the very least, Mike. Our old mm-hmm. friend, our old friend Glacier is coming back to play with us. How exciting! That, put, that puts such a smile on my face. Right, right. I am delighted that Glacier is coming back to see us, and a couple other familiar faces are kind of coming out of the mothballs. Who would have thought Flex Rumble Crunch would be back in a Chikara ring? Yeah, yeah. Flex Rumble Crunch. Uh, we're also going to see our old friend Grizzly Redwood. Who, uh, mm-hmm. not to keep bringing you back to Weird Al, the last time I saw Grizzly Redwood uh, was at a Weird Al concert. I was sitting in front of him, <laughs> uh, just, just by chance. Uh, actually, I've seen I've seen him uh, more recently at some pro wrestling explosion events. Uh, but yes, I had seen him for the first time in a long time there, sporting his beard, just going for it. And and interestingly enough, uh, all three previous Infinite Gauntlet winners that would be Hollow Wicked from season sixteen, Dasher Hatfield from season seventeen, and Solo Darling from season eighteen will be entered in this Infinite Gauntlet. So three of the thirty-three competitors are former winners. Uh, they know what it takes to win. And in case you're uninitiated, it works sort of in the vein of a Royal Rumble. Uh, to start, every eighty-eight seconds, a new competitor enters the fray, and this just continues until all thirty-three are in uh the big difference from the royal rumble is the intervals are 88 seconds and you can be eliminated via pinfall via submission or over the top ropes there are many ways to be eliminated uh you know the ring could fill up with as many as 33 competitors at once it could be just just one left uh but at the end the prize is a golden opportunity it's it's uh, it's jumping to the front of the line you don't need to win three consecutive matches Three coins right there on the spot. No need to to win a tournament, anything. In in one match, you can acquire three points and uh, choose whatever uh, championship you wish to challenge for. So there will be a lot on the line on Saturday, May 5th. And uh, um, have have you have not been in one of these infinite gauntlets, Mike? I was going to ask you for some strategy tips, but I don't, I don't know that you've ever entered one. No, I have not. And you saying that makes me realize there was a period in my career where I was a frequent participant in Battle Royals. Mm-hmm. And I am 99.9% certain I've never, ever, ever won a battle royal. I bet you I've been in, I'm close to 50. I know a guy if you want to get this one. I don't know. I think we're full, but I'll, I'll, I know a guy. Don't worry about it. Oh. Uh, th- that's, oh. That's not all that's on the card, though. Uh, of all the of, of, of sentences we never thought we'd say out loud for 500, Alex, uh, Mr. Anderson will be making his Chikara debut. Uh, from the great state of Minnesota. He'll be joining us to take on our own resident mister in a uh, Broken Wings showdown, Mr. versus Mr. Touchdown versus Kennedy. That's a non-Infinite Gauntlet singles attraction on May 5th. Uh, we got Four Corners tag team action and, and so much more. Uh, like, you know, it, it's uh, if it needs to be a big event if we're going to li- leave the friendly confines of home base of the Wrestle Factory in Philadelphia. And we are bringing it, I mean, 
just thinking of this, there's there's going to be close to, if not 50 competitors in the locker room alone on a Saturday night, May the 5th. Huge event uh, coming to the Poconos. I want to just take a second here and appreciate that really subtle Mr. Mister illusion <laughs> that you slipped in there. 80s, three hit wonders, Mr. Mister. What's the third uh, one? I know, I know Kiri and I know Broken Wings. Uh, that's right. And they do. They have a third one, which is from that same album of theirs, uh, Welcome to the Real World, which came out in 1985 and for which they won a Grammy, uh, contained three hits. Now, we know Broken Wings and Kyrie because both of them went to number one on the U.S. Uh, Billboard Hot 200. Uh-huh. However, they had another top 10 hit off that album. It peaked at number eight, Bryce, and it's <laughs> called Is It Love? Oh, Okay. So there's a chance if you listen to it, you'd be like, oh, yeah, like I do know that. And it's one of those 80s tracks where like the the chorus would every once and again somehow tumble out of the dusty recesses of my brain. I'd be like, what is that song? But then eventually I was at a restaurant and it happened to be on the in-house play. I was at a Ruby Tuesdays at a corner booth and it came on the in-house play right after Shazam became an app. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this? And it told me. Is It Love by Mr. Mister. Wow. Thank you, Ruby Tuesdays. I can't, right? wait, I can't wait to see you tell Mr. Anderson this story on May 5th. <laughs> <laughs> he will be so bored. Um, further relating to Chikara, you may know that the, uh, like the main driving force behind the band Mr. Mister is Richard Page. Do you know this? I, did know, I do know this. Okay. So Richard Page briefly was considered to contribute an original track – to the Ashes of Chikara soundtrack. Wow. <laughs> Full circle. We really right? we, How we, weird. We can really do six degrees of just about anything, I feel like, when it comes to Chikara. It's <laughs> coming up on 16 years. Unbelievable. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's, that's, that's the kind of night we're going to have, an unbelievable night on May 5th. I mean, we, we mentioned that we haven't been podcasting as much as we may have liked or as much as that one guy in New Orleans uh, may have liked. But it's uh, it's not for not for having nothing better to do. Nearly every Saturday, there's been something going on between hours of power events at the Wrestle Factory. I mean, this is the part of the season where the the snowballs rolling down the hill, Mike. I don't know if you mm-hmm. felt this way in your days as director of fun, but it's uh, it's 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 off and running now. Uh, it seems like there's a, a new task, a new issue every day to to to, to deal with. Uh, if it's not the Independent Wrestling Marathon being part of that on April 28th, uh, the, the May 5th Infinite Gauntlet, the Anniversario event on Saturday, May 26th, the Johnny Kidd Invitational on Saturday, June 9th, and then before you know it, it'll be King of Trios time. It's, it's all happening. Season 19 in full swing. Plenty of ways to experience it. Although it should be noted that while every Wrestle Factory event is available on Chikaratobi, that will not be the case. You have to come see the Infinite Gauntlet live on Saturday night, May 5th, at uh, the Pocono Mountain West Junior High School in Pocono Summit, Pennsylvania. Do you know the name mm-hmm. of the team uh, the, at the Pocono Mountain West High School, Mike? They are the Panthers. Okay, okay, okay. Good to know. That seems that seems easily uh, uh, replicated. We could find some of the Panthers jersey for some local color for some easy pops. That seems no problem. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Panthers. It should be easy to do. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Very much looking forward to that on May 5th. Of course, like like Bryce pointed out, not only Mr. Anderson against Mr. Touchdown, but a uh, a full card of supporting bouts underneath the Infinite Gauntlet, including an awesome four-corner elimination tag that pits some of the very best tag teams and a newly minted one against one another. Des Peloton take on Crummels and Defarge, the former Campiones. Oleg the Usurper and the proletariat Boar of Moldova teaming together. And the return of Cheech Hernandez and Colin Delaney, who we recently got to see attempt to qualify for the Tag World Grand Prix. That was hard to believe. The pace we're keeping <laughs> thus far this season has been frenetic. Yeah, it's all it's all blurring together, but in a good way. Yeah, that was that was uh, March 17th, which was, I believe, nine months ago, right? Am I is my mm-hmm. math correct? Nine months. I believe you're exactly right. <laughs> but yes, so yes, impressive indeed. were our old friends Colin Delaney and Cheech Hernandez. Uh, tag team specialists, formerly with other partners, but now together all over the circuit. Excited to see them back in the Chikara ring once more on Saturday night, May 5. Uh, I mean, really, this is they can they can work smarter, not harder here. They were looking to qualify for the Tag World Grand Prix, where they had to win a qualifying match, then win three matches to get a title shot. If they are able to successfully eliminate all three other teams this four-corner tag, they can get three coins in one fell swoop. So uh, one team could very easily leave uh, Pocono Summit with three coins in that four-corner tag, not to mention someone guaranteed to leave uh, with a guaranteed title shot of their choosing, whoever wins that infinite gauntlet, that 33 competitors. Uh, we don't even know all 33 competitors yet. We, you mentioned some of the highlights, our old friend uh, Flex Rumble Crunch, our old uh, friend Princess Kimberly coming back to see us again, former grand champion of Chikar. I mean, there's there's several former grand champions, all three previous winners in this glacier for goodness sake like what more do you people want uh what a showdown <laughs> it's gonna be on a saturday night may 5 Hmm. well uh as we shift gears uh this is very timely however by the time this publishes it may seem like it's got just a little bit of dust on it nevertheless we would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to talk about a blue collar hero in something blue referring to the passing of a real wrestling icon. And the term icon is overused in the word of wrestling. In the, in the world of wrestling, people throw around hyperbolic terms like icon all the time. I blame you for this trend, Tony Schiavone. But Bruno Sammartino really was an icon. Yes, the, uh, the same could be said for the word legend. Uh, that's another mm-hmm. one that's thrown around very easily nowadays. But um, just going back and... Uh, reading up on uh, Bruno Sammartino and uh, I mean there are uh, a lot of things that could be said about the Wrestling Observer newsletter but I think one thing they do very well uh, what Dave Meltzer does very well is you know eulogizing people and kind of you know leaving a, a historic thing like the the words that he wrote a lot of which I had learned for the first time about Bruno Sammartino's life like those will be there forever uh, and I think that's a, a great asset he offers to the historic nature of pro wrestling, which uh, I don't know if you feel this, Mike, but even since I started, the the focus that the world of pro wrestling has on its history seems to be diminishing. Uh, things mm-hmm. happen very fast now. I don't know if it's the the world of now 280 characters or, you know, the, the rest in peace world of vines, uh, but a, a title reign. Of seven years, eight months, and one day, I am willing to bet is will never be seen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned this on social media, actually, speaking of 280 characters, to, to think that someone that uh, was born on August 17th, 2010, uh, 
they could have been born on that day and that title reign that 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 they would have been as old as Bruno San Martino's title reign on the day he died. Mm. Seven years, eight months, and one day. And and for perspective's sake, uh, Jeff Hardy, he won the United States Championship on a recent episode of Monday Night Raw. He would need to lose that title on December 17th, 2025 to have a... a <laughs> December 17th. That's, that's how long, for, for perspective, a seven-year, eight-month, and one-day title reign is. And um, one of the most amazing stories, obviously, I was not at Madison Square Garden in 1971. Were you, Mike? No, I no, wasn't quite no, born. No, no, no. But there are, there are stories of legendary status appropriately of uh, Bruno San Martino thought he lost his hearing when he lost the championship uh, mm. to Ivan Koloff because there was the initial reaction was shock. It was silence. Mm-hmm. And then they had to rush him out, rush Koloff out because they thought there was going to be a riot. And there's, yes. you know, everyone swears they saw grown men crying when Bruno San Martino lost that championship that he held for seven years, eight months, and one day, which I cannot get over that statistic. Then he went on, won the title again, and held it for another three and a half years as a combined, I believe, almost, if not 11 years as world champion, uh, WWF world champion. An un- amazing, iconic, legendary, never-to-be-replicated feat uh, by Bruno San Martino. And uh, you had a chance, I have, a, I have a story, but you had a chance to meet him at some point, Mike? That's true. Yeah, I met him in 1995. Um, I had only been wrestling about a year at the time, and uh, I was doing a lot of Pittsburgh area independence. I would also sometimes do Eastern Ohio or West Virginia. But this region, because Bruno San Martino is of Pittsburgh, this is where he is you know, the most legendary, perhaps. He is the most revered. That's like his home turf. So every once and again, a promoter would attempt to lure Bruno San Martino to their event just to make like an appearance. And he always had very specific conditions, I remember, that if he was there, he did not want to be introduced to the crowd. If he was there, he was not going to get in the ring and cut a promo putting over local champion XYZ. He was not going to do some, you know, one-off thing where he picks somebody up in his famous backbreaker-type finishing hold or whatever. More times than not, he would only agree to come if you would put his son, David, in a match. Um, Or he had some other relative for a while, because I don't think David San Martino's wrestling career lasted all that long. Do you know much about David San Martino as a wrestler? I believe they were estranged in later years. I know that... One of the reasons Bruno made a comeback and actually wrestled for a, 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 a bit in like 85, 86, 87 was to try to help his son out. He did a couple of tag matches with his uh, son in that era. And then, for whatever reason, uh, they became estranged and were not speaking for the rest of his life. And I haven't heard a thing about David San Martino in, I guess, 30 years at this point. So I, I, hmm. I, I was not aware that they were on those terms in those days. It may have been another member of his family um, who was a huge individual, like one of those guys who a previous generation would say, you look at him and you know that he's a professional wrestler. This guy went everywhere with Bruno San Martino, and they were related somehow. But in hearing this, it makes me think, no, it could not have been David. But that was his interest. If he came, you had to put this guy on the card somewhere. You had to find a match for this guy. 
So a lot of times the promoters did not want to play ball. Even though there was value, you could his name would be bigger than anybody else's on the poster, as well it should be, an appearance by Bruno, Bruno Sammartino, and then everyone else's names should obviously be in much smaller fonts. Sure. Um, there was an occasion when I worked for the guy I affectionately referred to as $5 Sal. <laughs> when $5 Sal, maybe like calling on his Italian connection, I don't know, got Bruno Sammartino to come to a United States Championship Wrestling event. And if memory serves, he was there the first night I defended the USCW Junior Heavyweight title, which I'm pretty sure is the first championship I ever held in professional wrestling. Um, it's 1995. And afterward, so he was off like in a corner of the room with his, you know, this relative of his who also kind of functioned as, as his bodyguard sometimes. Um, and he had like a small phalanx of people around him to sort of, you know, keep people at bay because, again, he really was the reason that people were there. Like they would swarm around him just to like – they just wanted to like shake his hand or, you know, just to see that he was okay because for a while – and. My history on this is not all that great, Bryce. Maybe you can fill in the blanks. You know, he was sort of like a pariah in wrestling for a while when he was at odds with the WWF machine. Yeah, he he went on. Uh, I believe it was the Phil Donahue show at this during this like when the steroid stuff was going on in like ninety two, ninety three or so, and he like he was spoke out against the WWF very adamantly. He did not like the way uh, that the industry was heading. Uh, and he was very, very outspoken to the point that him agreeing to join the WWE Hall of Fame in 2013 was considered a small miracle. Uh, so <laughs> this would definitely have been in those days where he was not on good terms with the machine, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And he was really kind of out of the spotlight. So, you know, this television taping for USCW, they drew their crowd really on the back of Bruno Sammartino's name. And he did, you know, there was a period during, of course, during the event where you could meet and greet him and have a photo taken with Bruno and he would autograph memorabilia for you, etc. But during the event, him and uh, this made me appreciate him, of course, that he said, while the wrestlers are in the ring, I am not going to be entertaining fans. The focus should be on the ring, which is something very gracious. And when you consider that there was a time when you could maybe make the argument that he was the guy in American professional wrestling, and you consider some of the people that carried that mantle after him, could you imagine, Bryce, an independent wrestling show anywhere on earth where Hulk Hogan would have said, no, during the event, we need the focus to be on the wrestlers in the ring and not on me? Oh, yeah. No, you, I, 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 can, I can picture several instances in my brain being in a ring refereeing a match that was happening right now and seeing a line of people at an autograph table somewhere in the room. I'm sure you can too. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Either the first match of the show or the first match of intermission. And like people way with, with not nearly the pedigree of a Bruno San Martino would be more than happy uh, to take $5 from people named Sal or whoever while that was going on. Mm-hmm. So I, that of course gave me an appreciation for him because while I knew that Bruno San Martino was a huge figure, I, I know more, more about him now than I did back in 1995. Uh, when the event was over, of course, and they cleared everybody out, uh, because I at least knew this much, despite having fairly atrocious wrestling etiquette at the time, I knew this much. I should go up to this guy and ask if he has any feedback about my match. And uh, so, you know, and, and he was very accessible and he was very warm and he was very friendly. And uh, he said to me, as well as to standing right behind me, happened to be the guy I defended this title against. 
He said, I appreciated that you were the only guys on the entire card that actually did wrestling holds. A lot of these guys just do fancy moves or whatever, and you guys actually did some wrestling holds. Uh, and to be fair, like most of the time, the guys just doing all the fancy moves because they didn't know any better was absolutely me. So I'm really glad on this particular day that I decided to showcase the fact that I knew a couple wrestling holds because I earned myself a very brief word of praise from Bruno Sammartino, which absolutely made my day. And I can remember recounting that to members of my family who would have known who Bruno Sammartino was. And they just were like, yeah, we don't believe you. Oh, come on. If, if anything, that's like, that's, that's, you know, everyone's dad's favorite wrestler, you know, or some, some mm-hmm. grandfather's like he was the guy in that day. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I just didn't believe that I even met him. Like uh, they were complete. They, the idea of what he represented to the people that knew him as the guy, his level of stardom, and the idea that where I, Mike Quackenbush, would have been wrestling in 1995, that the two of us could have met, they just dismissed it as if it was, oh, you know, your, a piece of fiction. Your 1995 cell phone didn't take selfies? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I did not actually travel with like a regular mobile phone until 2001. Now, I, I actually got one. I went to te- to college in the fall of 2001, and I started – I joined Chikara in March of 2002. So, like, it was important to my parents that I had a cell phone if I was going to be living in Philadelphia, and they were not going to be. So, like, very close to that, there was a – you know, had I joined a year earlier, I would have known a time in wrestling without a cell phone, which is insane to me. I mm. definitely remember a time in wrestling of printing MapQuest directions before you left. <laughs> yes. Definitely remember that. Uh, a time that I did print MapQuest directions was a time that I refereed an IWC title match in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. I'm sure mm. you've been to Monroeville, Mike. Most certainly. There's a mall there. It's a suburb of Pittsburgh. And on, on this day, which uh, I believe to be July 1st, 2005, uh, Bruno Sammartino came out and waved to the crowd before a title match. Mm. Uh, and shook hands with the champion that night, Shirley Doe, and the challenger, Eddie Kingston. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. And uh, this was all arranged. There was somebody was doing a favor for someone, and there was a camera crew following Bruno. Mm. Like the, a documentary was being filmed about him. The local news was doing a feature on him, but there was a reason he came out, waved to the crowd. Shook hands with Shirley Doe, shook hands with Eddie Kingston, got out of the ring, and left. And it, he, mm. he was not a jerk. He just – he had another commitment. He had somewhere to be. He was – it was like part of the schedule. He did not leave because he was like uh, – you know, didn't want to be there. He just had somewhere else to be. And, right. And uh, 22-year-old Bryce did not appreciate this like he should have. <laughs> you, you, you know, like like sta- sure. standing in a ring at the same time as Bruno San Martino in a Pittsburgh suburb, like – that didn't really actually fully resonate with me until very like this week when this news came and I realized like, wow, it's a pretty cool thing I got to do uh, mm-hmm. just by being in the right place at the right time. And the, the other part that I remember, and I actually uh, texted with Eddie about this to make sure I was remembering this correctly. Uh, the big concern that night was the promoter at the time, Norm Connors, who uh, very much wanted to be on Bruno San Martino's good side. If you ran an independent wrestling promotion, whether you were $5 Sal or Norm Connors in the Pittsburgh area, you wanted to, you wanted to be Bruno San Martino to be your friend because he, mm-hmm. he, he was local, he was around, he was a draw anywhere he went. Uh, it was very important that, it was, uh, that Eddie was not allowed to um, 
explore his character with Mr. San Martino that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not meant to, you know, say what Eddie Kingston would have said to anyone else in 2005. He was to shake his hand and bow his head very respectfully. Uh, that was said at least eight or ten times by Norm, Con- Norm Connors that night. Uh, but for an ever fleeting moment, I stood in a wrestling ring at the same time as Bruno San Martino. Uh, and yeah, had it, had I been 27 year old Bryce or 32 year old Bryce, I feel like I would have had a, a much more, a much greater appreciation of that moment, but still he, he, um, he carried an aura about him, you know, like he was one of those few people in 1995, in 2005, I'm sure in 2015, when he walked into a room he carried a presence with him, uh, you know, an, an unteachable presence that uh, millions of professional wrestlers that, you know, know way more wrestling moves and may have way more flamboyant outfits uh, would die to be able to carry. And it's just, uh, from what it sounds like, was just grit and hard work and, you know, repetition. And he, he had a very, like, respectful demeanor. You know, even people that didn't like him wouldn't say they didn't respect him. And mm-hmm. uh, I, that's a very admirable legacy. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think the fact that he is behind the scenes, no matter what the situation, the part of his legend is how unbelievably well-mannered he was, yeah. says a lot about the man. Yeah. 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 And he, was, he, was, he, he stuck to his guns. He was big on his principles. Like if he believed something, he believed it all the way. Uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't bend for a payday or, or all these other wrestling stories that you hear. Like he stuck to his guns and he, he, he helped out a lot of people he believed in. I mean, he basically, he, he all but single-handedly made Larry Zabisco's career. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's someone that he trained. That's someone, fr- a, a kid from Pittsburgh that he saw something in that he went to bat for and made. And like, he was that kind of guy. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we should all be so lucky to be remembered, you know, one hundredth of one percent of the the way bruno sammartino is yeah yeah exactly uh, i wish i would have had an opportunity when perhaps i was a tad more mature in wrestling mm-hmm. to have interacted with him but uh i'm glad for the very brief interaction i did have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah on, on, a, on a happier note though right on perhaps now something borrowed it's the only one we haven't crossed off the list this week we would be remiss if we didn't discuss our times at the the the, the mega, crazy, insane weekend that has grown to become WrestleMania weekend, which this year was held in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, um, I was there for three days, and it felt like uh, a com- it, it, you could have told me I was there for three hours, or it felt like I was there for three months, because I feel like I crammed three months' worth of activity into three days. Uh, I think I slept a total of 12 hours the entire time I was in New Orleans, but what a weekend it was. Uh, it's, it's never fails to amaze me the way that, you know, your family couldn't possibly believe that, that you were in the same place as Bruno Sammartino and he complimented you because like, they don't get it. They don't see what, Mm -hmm. you know, I I remember, um, in high school, the day after Owen Hart died, my friends and I were so moved by this that we, you know, made armbands and wore them around school because this we were so touched by this, this awful situation. And we were made fun of for this. And I remember mm. that even during the Attitude Era when wrestling was as popular maybe it has ever been, it was very easy to make fun of wrestling fans in middle school and high school, wherever. 
And in New Orleans, the week, the first week of April, no wrestling fans were made fun of. I can assure you that the, the, <laughs> the spirit of pro wrestling just took over the entire city. And it's so exciting to be out, you know, just walking the streets and seeing obscure, weird, you know, the genius Lenny Poffo t-shirts or, <laughs> or seeing Demolition hobble into their hotel lobby just by chance. Like, I don't know if you got to have any of these crazy interactions, these, these little micro conversations of which I feel like I had 500 of, but like, there truly is nothing like WrestleMania week. And, uh, um, even if it's not, you know, I didn't go to one WWE-sponsored event. Like, I didn't get a chance to go take over. I didn't go to WrestleMania. But just being around that vibe in the city is, is an, an unmistakable uh, positive experience. And every wrestling nerd and everywhere in the world, and there were people there from all over. Uh, I, I spoke to some fans from Bulgaria at the More Than Mania events. I don't even know where, Bul- I don't even know where Bulgaria is on a map. Uh, but they came from near and far to be part of WrestleMania weekend. And uh, it, it's been a while since you were part of one of these, right, Mike? Oh, no, we were in Orlando last year. We were in Orlando last year. That's true, yes. Um, I think you were in a unique position. I think about that tweet that you sent out about uh, you got to referee for, for legends. You got to referee for people that performed at wrestlemania um wrestlers from all these different countries and everything if anyone got a really unique sampler plate of micro conversations it was probably you i don't know that anybody more than bryce remsburg got to interact with such a diverse cast of characters over the course i too was only on the ground for about three days uh there was a day of travel on each side of that but uh Right, like you kind of got to dip in and dip out with so many fascinating personalities. Yeah. Like on the one end of the spectrum, right? Like people that are really at the cutting edge of what we're doing right now, like the Kota Ibushis and the, the Pentagons, et cetera, et cetera. And then also you refereed for Alabama Doink. I did refereed for Alabama Doink. <laughs> I did. And uh and Marty DeRosa, uh Colt Cabana's buddy who his, yes. his, his very first match. I was able to referee for the session Marth Martina for the first time, who's quite a character. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi, who afterwards, I don't know if he, if, I don't know if you've experienced this. All the New Japan guys shake hands a certain way. Have you seen this? I don't, I don't know that it's, I know what you're referring it's to. It's like a handshake followed by a fist bump right away. And I was watching oh. them do it in the locker room. And afterwards, I, you know, you know, went over to ask Tanahashi if everything was okay, is anything I could have done differently. And he gave me the cool kid fist bump. And I was like, does he give that to everyone? Or does he think I'm cool? I don't, I'm, I'm going to take it. I'm just going to take it. I'm just going to take yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, take it and run. Right, 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 right. And, you know, sharing a locker room with uh, Kenny Omega and Kota Ibushi and, you know, the crazy experiences that I, I, Twice over the course of the weekend, because in of the seven events that I refereed on, uh, none of them were consecutively at the same venue. <laughs> mm. So the, the, <laughs> the two major independent venues, the Sugar Mill in, in town, in downtown New Orleans, and the uh, Pont Chartrain Convention Center, which is actually in Kenner, Louisiana, which is about 25 minutes apart. Of the seven mm-hmm. events, I ping-ponged back and forth to, to each event. And uh, Uber and Lyft pricing was through the roof. So I'm, I had a lot of very nice friends to, to share rides with. But twice over the course of the weekend, I left a show, in, still in my referee shirt, got into a car with my, my luggage, and went right to the next show. And, <laughs> and like, nothing makes you feel like a superstar like that. You know, like, it, 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 it's, it's mm-hmm. an exhilarating experience to, to leave the WrestleCon Super Show at intermission so you can get to beyond and for bell time. Uh, stuff like that. Uh, refereeing in a... Uh, a match with a whole show with no ropes. Have you ever performed in a ring with no ropes, Mike? 
I don't think so. It's a very bizarre feeling. It's it's a weird mm-hmm. sensation. It it uh you kind of like innately, I mean more often than not, we probably enter I'd say 16 by 16 or 18 by 18 rings are probably the most common on the independence. And you just kind of get a vibe, like the pacing of where the ropes are going to be. Like at a point of after, you know, almost 16 years of refereeing, I feel like I could put my arm out and know where a rope or a turnbuckle is going to be. But when you go to do that and it's not there, it's a very disconcerting sensation. (laughs) Uh, I I wasn't even wrestling, but it's just, you know, you feel like you could fall off a cliff at any time. Uh, But, but yeah, just, all flavors of wrestling uh, represented. And I know that, you know, in our, we don't maybe get out of the Chikara bubble as much as, as we'd like to, or, or as much as we used to definitely, but like really in a short amount of time, I feel like I checked a, a lot of boxes. Uh, I'm still feeling the exhausting effects of that weekend, but a, a, a great, great time had in New Orleans. Um, mine was more of a broad um, rapid fire experience. You had more of a, a dialed-in personal experience, I guess I should say, about your time in New Orleans? True. Um, yeah, I, although I, I felt the hustle and bustle as well, and I, I think I was probably about 10% as active as you were. <laughs> um, and it, no joke, I, I was making this remark. It took me nine days to recover from that New Orleans trip. Um, part of it was trying to adjust your sleep schedule because uh, when I walked to the ring – for my match with David Starr at Joey Janela's Spring Break 2, it was give or take 2.15 a.m., <laughs> yeah. which is not the hour at which I typically conduct my professional wrestling, Bryce. No, no. I'm really well acclimated to the afternoon matinees of Chikara. No, twice, two, two nights in a row, I was in the ring at a time that's closer to the time I usually wake up. <laughs> than the time I go to sleep. Life with a toddler is, you know, a, a give or take 10.30 to 6.30 you're trying to sleep. And I was mm-hmm. definitely in the ring after 3 a.m. at least one of those nights. But please, yes, go on. So, yeah, that that was a, that, that was a concern I had the week of the trip. Like, in what condition? And originally I thought we were going on second to last. In an initial draft of the card, we were on second to last and then to be followed by the great Sasuke and Joey Janela. And I thought, am I going to be walking to the ring at 3 a.m.? Because how am I going to mask that exhaustion to the audience? Like something must be – there must be an emergency if I'm (laughs) awake at 3 Mm -hmm. a.m. So I was like, man, do I need to like drink like a a double espresso or something around midnight so that I feel like I'm awake? Um, I I definitely felt out of sorts and yet I really wanted to be as fully present for that match as possible. It was something very special and uh, at the request of the people who put the match together, I had the week going into that event. That why they asked for this thing exactly, Bryce, I don't know. They asked for me to record a 10-minute audio message to David Starr. And David had campaigned online uh, over a long period of time to have this match before it became reality. And I don't know if this was meant as like they wanted this because it was going to be used in like a video package, or I don't know what purpose it was for. But while I was down there then... Um, I had the chance to ask David, I said, I recorded something for you that's about 10 minutes long, like a very personal message to you. Did you get it? And he said, no, I don't know what you're referring to. And I was like, what was that for? Like, I, I don't know what whatever came of it. But um, 
Yeah, mine mine was really all very focused on that one exact match. And not only what I wanted to the match to contain for David, but also because I was aware, and a few people did step up to tell me, they said, you know, I'm here specifically to see you. And even if that's just one person in, I don't know what, maybe, you think they had 2,000 people it at was, Joey Janela's that, spring break? There was definitely over 1,500. They said they were, they think they were closer to 2,000. They, they had they had opened a new area of seating that was unopened for the rest of the weekend only for spring break, for an event that began at midnight. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, w- I was out beforehand at the tables and – like I said, it really, even if just one person in a sea of 2000 has come for that specific purpose, that they are there to see you, um, the performance to a degree must be about that person. That That's my belief. That's just my personal philosophy. And so I had to also ask myself, what are the people that came some distance, right? Whether uh, it was a girl from Chicago who came or an old friend who came all the way from England just for the chance to to say hello Mm -hmm. um, and say, you know, I haven't seen you wrestle in person in nine years. Um, What did they want from it? And so I had to take all of that into consideration and then still walk to the ring at 2.15 a.m. and make it look like that's where I wanted to be as opposed to my bed. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, at the hotel where I was staying, on the topic of micro interactions, I had this interesting series of events. And uh, I realized we could probably tell stories about our NOLA experience that would fill an entire other podcast or <laughs> yeah, two, but yeah. I'll choose to just tell this one. Maybe you have just, just one in particular that sticks out to you. Here's mine. Uh, the days in where I was put up by the people at, uh, organizing Joey Janela's spring break too, I was put at the days in and my room came equipped with no shower curtain. Oh, and I thought, well, that's a new innovation. So, uh, I, I don't remember if it was day one or day two, what it was. It's all a blur now. But I called down and they said, we'll have the maintenance guy come and he's going to bring you a shower curtain. So I I can't shower until this guy comes, right? Uh, So, you know, when they say two minutes, Bryce, they don't really mean two minutes. No, they don't. So about 25 minutes later, this guy ambles up to the door and he's like, hi, I have the shower curtain and I'll put it up. And he's like, I'm sorry, that took so long. And I'm like, well, you know, whatever. And he said there was a bit of an issue down in the lobby and they needed everybody down there to help sort it out. And I was like, oh. Was it something serious? And he said, well, you may know that there's a bunch of professional wrestlers in town this week. And I was like, what? And he said, one of them was causing a bit of a scene down in the lobby. And I said, oh, do you happen to know his name? And he said, yes, it's Caval. (laughs) Um, So my whole schedule that day then is about a half hour behind because I had to wait so long to shower and get moving. So I'm hustling out of the days in back to the rental car that I've got. And I happen in the parking lot to bump into Dan Severn. Mm-hmm. And I have not seen Dan Severn in, I couldn't tell you how long, but I know this. The last time I saw Dan Severn, he did me a kindness. And I have never really had the opportunity to fully thank him for that. So I said to him, you know, I introduced myself and um, I made sure to, to name drop Reckless Youth Tom Carter, who's mm-hmm. someone that Dan remembers, as he most certainly does not remember me. And I said to him, I, you know, I gather that you don't recall. In any event, we were on a card together at the end of the 90s where I, I incurred a very serious head injury, maybe the, one of the most serious of my whole career, in which my scalp was sliced open and I had to be stitched up at some fly-by-night operation and then rushed to the airport still in my gear 
with caked on blood to fly home or I would not have made it. Like if they hadn't rushed me at that exact moment to the airport, I would not have made it home. And you, Dan Severn, upon seeing the condition, the horrific state I was in, you went up to the counter and you used your frequent flyer miles and you got me moved up into first class so that I would be a little more comfortable on the flight home. And I said, you know, I I can't tell you how much that meant to me then. And I know I was I was concussed and I was in a horrible state. And I don't know that I took the time to do it then, but that's always stayed with me. Here we are 20 years later. And I just wanted to say thank you for that. And uh, he was very gracious. Dan is an exceptionally polite guy. And he had a big toothy grin on his face. And he said, thank you so much for coming up and saying that to me. But I want you to know, I have no memory of that at all. And I was like, that's okay. Like to you, that might not have been anything, but it really did mean a lot to me. Uh, That was the best, I think, of the weird micro interactions I got to have. Does one spring to your mind? Um, Last year at at spring break one, I do remember that as part of the the atmosphere, I was refereeing a lot of the matches in my bathing suit and a pair of sunglasses. (laughs) I've seen pictures of this. And and, uh, I had you know, drawn the straw where I would be refereeing the main event of the evening, which did go on at 2.45 a.m., and was mm-hmm. Dan Severn against Matt Riddle. And I had, you know, maybe met Dan Severn in passing, but I remember thinking to myself, uh, I don't think I should referee a match involving Dan Severn in my bathing suit. Something, <laughs> something about that just feels disrespectful and wrong somewhere along the way. And I remember running to the back, really quickly changing and running back, and then doing it in the proper referee time because it doesn't seem like something Dan Severn would be amused by. Not that he's impolite, right. but, mm. you know, that situation, 2.45 in the morning, Dan Severn, Matt Riddle, uh, I did it in, my, in the proper referee attire. Uh, this past year, um, I just think about all the people that, that I, you know, I hadn't seen Walter in 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I remember when he was Big Van Walter in some of our right. visits to WXW in Germany in like 2007 and eight, and now he's you know one of the hottest guys on the circuit. Um, I had not seen Tennille Dashwood in probably seven years when she was in Shimmer, and just mm-hmm. like, and just, hey, how are you? You know, what you been up to? She's like, oh, you know, I've been busy. Okay, cool. And then we, big rush right to the ring. She was in a a ten person tag team match at the WrestleCon Super Show. Um, mm. And there's just like guys that you forget about, not forget about, that you, you don't think about every day that just like guys like Lenny Leonard and guys like Nate Webb that you just like, oh man, <laughs> you're just happy to see them, you know, like they just, they, yes. they bring a smile to your face and even if it's just, you know, no more than a hug or, you know, being excited to visit the doctor at the same time as Tiger Hattori. How's that for a full circle in this, in right. this episode? Uh, but the, the the moment that I had that I actually, I, I feel like I should do this more often is stop and take a photo. I was standing having a conversation. There were four people in the conversation. Myself, Orange Cassidy, Zack Sabre Jr., and Nick Gage. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this will never happen again. Right. Like the odds of the four of us having a conversation together will probably never happen again. And I asked, I said, can I take a photo? And the three of them, yeah, sure. I took up my phone. I took a picture of the three of them cheersing because like that to me, like that photo kind of sums up WrestleMania weekend in a, in a weird, bizarre way, you know? I do. Yeah. And, and they're all pleasant in their own way. You know, like uh, I, I, 
say what you will about Nick Gage. I, I he's always been very kind. And I, I'm always happy to see him. And just the three of them from three completely different backgrounds in in life and in wrestling, just having a chat about what's going on, having a chat about being at this crazy idea that Joey Janela had that's this crazy phenomenon. Like, man, like that truly is the spirit of independent wrestling right there, in, in right in front of my face. And I'm so happy I have that photo forever. Yeah. I feel the same way about Nick Gage. You might make the mistake of thinking his in-ring persona right? is in any way, shape, or form how he really is. No. And that uh, is not the case. Um, I have never had anything other than the most pleasant of interactions mm-hmm. with him from way back when Chikara's Wrestle Factory and the CZW Training School mm-hmm. were combined. I was always astonished because I would make the offer to anyone from the CZW locker room, if you want to be in my class, in my, back then I think my classes were on Wednesday nights, I said, you are more than welcome. And the only CZW wrestler that ever took me up on it was Nick Gage. He really just had this wonderful appetite for professional wrestling. uh, And it was nice to catch up with him. I know, uh, man, he's had a crazy ride. And yet, (laughs) despite everything that dude has been through, every time I see him, he's nothing other than pleasant and polite. Yep, yep. And it's not just, hey, how are you? He asks about family. He asks how things are. He has a crazy appreciation for old Southern wrestling. You know, like he, yes. he can name off all these crazy finishes that like I've never heard of. Like he's such an encyclopedic brain for pro wrestling. Like just a fascinating guy. Like when he, when he writes a book, I will read it. I guarantee you mm-hmm. that. Right on. Well, that about wraps it up Mm -hmm. for another Deep Blue Something. Boy, we covered all the bases in this one, and we'll try a little harder to close that gap between episodes for you. We'll try. Debbie's will try. But for Bryce Remsburg, oh, and for Todd and Toby Pipes, I'm Mike Quackenbush saying have a good week. Till next week.